I'm Susanna Walters, and welcome to Ask a Feminist, a podcast from Signs, Journal of Women in Culture and Society. On this podcast, we actually ask feminists about the pressing issues of the day to provide the kind of feminist analysis and context that is so often missing in mainstream coverage. On this episode, we have a conversation about the relationship between activism and the academy, particularly how scholars and activists can serve as resources for one another. Recorded live at the most recent National Women's Studies Association conference in San Francisco, this dialogue features Isha Pandit, a founding member of the Crunk Feminist Collective, who is now a writer, policy activist, and the co-founder of the Center for Advancing Innovative Policy in Houston, and Paula Moya, a professor of English at Stanford, whose thinking about identity has influenced feminist theorizing across disciplines. Carla Kaplan, chair of the editorial board of Signs, and I facilitated the first part of the conversation, and then Polynesia took the opportunity to pick each other's brains about how their work can be mutually beneficial. This conversation really showcases the bridge-building ethos behind our Feminist Public Intellectuals Project, which is all available for free on our website, signsjournal.org. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, welcome. I'm Carla Kaplan. I'm the chair of the editorial board of Signs. Let me give you some background on on what we're doing. When Signs relocated uh, from Rutgers to Northeastern University in 2015, editors Susanna Walters and I tried to undertake a rethinking of the public role of feminist scholarship. And we tried to use this as an occasion to think about what the role of a journal is at that time. 2015 was, of course, before the horrors. So things became even more urgent afterwards. In keeping with the consistent mission of Signs, which has always been to matter in the world, we launched something called the Feminist Public Intellectuals Project to engage feminist theorizing with pressing political and social issues through three open access online initiatives. One is called Ask a Feminist, and these are interviews. One is called Short Takes, which are pieces that respond to books that are in the public sphere speaking in our name, usually popular books. And one is called Feminist Frictions, which takes up key controversies in feminist theory, and usually that's one scholar taking up the long history of a feminist controversy. The Ask a Feminist feature of the Feminist Public Intellectuals Project has been a feature that creates interviews with leading feminist thinkers on issues raised by the contemporary moment, but with a long look back to the long history of feminist thinking about those issues. What we wanted to do was bring that feature to the NWSA by creating this conversation featuring Isha Pandit and Paula Moya in conversation with one another and in conversation with us to model ways in which feminist scholars and activists can talk to each other in ways that draw on our deep history and that address the urgencies of the moment. Um, Let me begin with a question for for both of you um, that continues from some of what I was saying in the introduction. The question I would phrase for you both now is to what extent should scholars now be accountable to activists and what does that look like? To what extent, if any, 
should activists think of themselves as accountable to scholars and what would that look like? For Ishad put it this way, you have a long history as a nonprofit leader and a progressive policy analyst. Are there any ways that you have relied on the work of feminist theorists in doing your own work? When you develop the kind of innovative policy work you do, do you ever think of it as accountable in any sense to that long history of feminist scholarship? And to Paula, I'd put it this way. Your own work on identity obviously has profound implications for political activism. To what extent do you think of those when you start doing the scholarly work? How much do you imagine in advance your work being used by activists? When you are developing the, the kind of innovative critical methods you do to think about what you call social psychological notions of schema or identity in its social context, do you ever think about how activists might take up that work? So starting with Isha and then Paula, how might you respond to any piece of that? Mm -hmm. um, this is a great question. I think about accountability a lot. I think about it in many directions. I think about accountability as a practice. Um, I, my, my thinking and my work is shaped and indebted deeply to the work of black feminist theorists in particular. And I, one of the things that I have learned, at, so I have practices of accountability, many different kinds of practices. So in terms of accountability to scholars and to the work that scholars have done, one of the practices of accountability that I rely heavily on is the, uh, the practice of naming our feminist genealogies. And so we talk, I talk often every time I talk about that which I have learned, and which includes a way of understanding myself in the world, it is indebted to the black feminist theorists that I read when I was an undergrad who made, myself, who made me legible to myself in many ways. And so I think about my political understanding as really grounded in those moments. Um, and of course I think about accountability to the people in my life who are not academic, certainly. Um, and I, but I really think of it as a, as a practice, and I think we talk a lot about solidarity and allyship, and I think those two things require mechanisms of accountability. And so they require conversations. In my, in my work as a, as a writer and, and sometime journalist, I, I have focused really heavily on uh, doing, my, doing my work and my writing in conversation with activists, and also in conversation with scholars, as a mechanism of accountability in my own work. We talk about a shallow allyship all the time. There's like people say, oh, you have to be a good ally. Well, what does that mean? It means like building in practices of accountability. So I think about it as this like very multifaceted piece and I, and I feel very in debt and I think it's important. You know, I run a, I am part of a South Asian feminist collective in Houston and a big part of our work is genealogical and we name the, the the theorists that came before us that made it possible for us to make that space, who talked about identity, who made us legible to ourselves in many ways, and who continue to be in conversation with us. So that's what I would say about that. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, great question. 
Well, I think uh, I sort of came into the academy at a time when the work of women of color, um, including Chicana feminists like Lorenzo Aldua and Sheree Moraga, was were really being read, uh, as well as the work of various black feminists. So I think I sort of entered feminism through women of color feminism, mm -hmm. and then moved out from there to see, um, you know, the other things that had had come along. So. I uh, do feel that it's very important to name those names in my scholarship, and I will always do that. But with respect to being accountable to um, activists, I think I've always felt that the work that I do matters um, in very practical ways in terms of how, like it should help us live better in the world. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how to say it other than that. And um, so a good deal of my early uh, theorizing was very much based on uh, my, my um, sort of organizing work with other scholars um, around the, the theoretical concept of identity. So you asked me about the uh, future of minority studies, mm -hmm. which was very much a, a networking, organizing um, uh, project that was designed to support and strengthen the scholarship of scholars of color in the academy. And it worked that way. I mean, at, for a good over 10 years, it really did work that way. And I still have a lot of networks from that. So yes, I do feel accountable. I don't have any difficulty with the idea that my work might be used. I hope my work is used. <laughs> um, so I guess I would sort of answer it in that way. So one of the ways you both responded was thinking about how that collaboration conversation between activists and scholars is part of making the work useful, making it possible to live better lives, making mm -hmm. it possible to live. One of the things that a lot of us have been talking about in the current moment is the work of explaining, mm -hmm. of trying to explain and to diagnose what the heck happened. I mean, for many of us, this remains on a daily basis inexplicable. Um, there was a lot about what happened in 2016 that remains either inexplicable or difficult to explain or hard to understand. And arguably, this is a huge piece of our job right now, is to diagnose and to explain that. Are there any particular ways that scholars and activists either have been effectively working together to provide those explanations or that either of you think they could do a better job of working together to make the inexplicable more understandable. Right. You know, I, I wonder how inexplicable mm -hmm. it really is. Um, I guess my feeling is after the election, I did understand better that there were a lot of people out there whose ideas about what is, what they value about what they want, what their interests are, is very different from my own. And I think part of that is, um, you know, related to the different values people hold. I'm thinking about somebody who believes in a divine being, who uh, understands something about the sanctity of life, you know, and and who is, uh, and who might therefore support Trump, right, because he will put uh, anti-abortion justice on there, regardless of the rot in his own personal life. Mm -hmm. And I mean, so I don't like it, but I do think it is at some level explicable if you grant them the interest that they 
hold. Mm -hmm. Now, I also think that a, a good part of where we are and why we are is um, the very uh, the fact that so many people watch very biased news sources. So I think the amount, the reach that uh, organizations like Fox News has that you know, if you watch how they cover some events that say maybe the New York Times, it's to they they report it, but it's a very different cast. Mm -hmm. And so I it's. I, I understand much greater than I did before that 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 the um, I, I don't even know how to say it, but that we are in different media circumstances. So one thing is I just don't think we're doing a good job of um, being able to explain our our positions in a way that um, so say conservative right wing are able to do so. And why why are why why do we have such trouble with this? I'm just going to say something. I think sometimes it's because uh, the answers are always way more complicated than <laughs> than, uh, than anybody wants to hear. Mm -hmm. That oftentimes, especially if you have a tendency to want um, simpler explanations, mm -hmm. then a good, bad mm -hmm. worldview mm -hmm. is um, preferable. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah, and if you couple that media landscape with a systematic defunding of the education system, then you have people who also are not interested in complicated views. It's like yes. a, right. it's yes. a symbiosis of this moment that leads us to, mm -hmm. um, you know, not being able to hold a, a complicated world view. But I think I'm. I also feel, I find it very frustrating. But I, I don't think I've ever found it inexplicable. No. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because I remember conversations I had right after. Um, Barack Obama won his election, which mm -hmm. felt inexplicable yeah. at that moment yeah. to me. Yeah. Um, and I remember feeling, um, having a conversation with my parents, um, and they said, I remember my father saying to me, well, we're going to have to pay for this. And I, re I remember that moment very clearly, and it has stayed with me. And so then he said to me way before anybody thought that Donald Trump had a chance of winning, he's like, well, I just want you to be prepared. Um, and I think it's a long, it's the long view um, mm -hmm. that sort of shows that the swings, um, you know, we talk about the arc of justice, mm -hmm. uh, you know, always bending towards justice, but we also remember in practice it actually feels a lot like a pendulum. Mm -hmm. It doesn't always feel like an arc. And that, I think, is the moment that we're in. But I think this feeling, this like sort of panic, because I do think there is a brazenness that's happening right now. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I feel that and I feel an urgency that comes with, well, they're just doing whatever they want out here. You know, like it feels like a kind of brazen mm -hmm. um, moment and it's part of backlash. Mm -hmm. But I think what it pushes us into is a fear-based analysis mm -hmm. and a shorter-sighted analysis around what's happening and how did this happen. Mm -hmm. And I think what I've learned from, particularly from feminist theorists, is that the long view is always the one. You know, right. that's where you really have to anchor yourself in thinking about the pendulum, thinking about the long arc. And that can help. As Arundhati Roy was talking yesterday about the field between hope and hopelessness. Mm -hmm. And I and I think that a longer historical view can help us find our way closer to the hope rather than getting mired in this moment of Yeah, and I, I think one yeah. other thing I'd like to say that, and this is the way that I think act, activism is actually so important for helping us to understand what might work even in a more complicated uh, value landscape. And I'm thinking about several years ago, and I wish I had this at the top of my mind. It may have actually been in science. It was published in science, actually. It was a Good. study <laughs> of, of, of 
Latinas in Albuquerque, New Mexico, many of whom were, do you remember this? Yeah. And, and so they, what, they put together a, they worked with like women's rights organizations. They put together a, uh, a campaign that took into account these women's values, which may not have always like been mine, but they were about, you know, and, and they were successful in uh, forestalling like um, legislation or, you know, something that would have uh, taken away uh, the women's rights to choose, you know, to this control their own reproductive capacities. The, the work of Young Women Unite. Yes, in, yeah, um, and it was amazing. You realize that part of it is is not uh, just writing these people off because they don't share all of your values, mm -hmm. but figuring out how you can take their complicated worldviews into account and, and mm -hmm. make them work for a larger number of people. So... Yeah, one thing I was just going to add too was that um, I mean I think one of the 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 things of this particular moment um, that maybe uh, feminists have been sort of duped into is that you know feminism is in a public place as never before. Mm -hmm. I mean whether it's you know uh, Adiche or Beyonce's use of Adiche or mm -hmm. all of the sort of celebrity feminism mm -hmm. and sort of. You know, feminism being in, in, in all kinds of attenuated ways, but feminism being in the public sphere in a way that it really hasn't ever before. I think for, for, for many folks, and this is, I think, where feminist theory can really help us understand this, for many folks, that, that presence lulled us into believing that, in fact, that was signifying a real reduction, a significant reduction in misogyny, a reduction in violence, a reduction in the ways in which male prerogative moves throughout the world, and of course it didn't. You know, mm -hmm. so in the midst of this incredible resurgence of a kind of popular, whether it's girl power or whatever, you know, popular versions of feminism, we also have the election of the most openly misogynist, not as the most misogynist, because they all have been, but yeah. the most openly violative and misogynist kind of government to exist. And so I do think that's part of what, I mean, when you talk about the long view, that's part of what, I mean, mm -hmm. that started with the analysis of backlash, we, you know, that kind of attention to, um, you know, do, to, to making sure we know the distinction between a popular or co-opted or light, you know, feminism light versions that circulate and the simultaneity of, you know, resurgent even ever more violative forms of patriarchal domination. In fact, just to feed off of that, one of the questions I wanted to ask you both to speak to is this the long history of misogyny and what our colleague Moya Bailey calls misogynoir, which has been one of the things that we get from the long work of feminist scholarship is the incredible worldwide, global, violent history of that misogyny. Is there any way at this moment, and it seems to me critical because we may well have female candidates again, is there any way at this moment to turn that long history into something that isn't a pure hopelessness? Is there anything we can do with the body of knowledge we have created and accumulated and now have on the long history of global misogyny that makes it something other than hopelessness? I would actually say yes. 
Oh, I've, been th- I've been thinking a lot about it, and I don't always feel the yes, but I Come feel on, it. Let us have it. But I feel sometimes. <laughs> yeah. So I would say the place to look for that is um, at the extremely local, and at the at the work of us doing. Um, you know, I live in Houston, Texas, and we have a very uh, beautiful emerging, uh, progressive, black brown political coalition that has been doing really powerful work in, a, in accountability at our local level. Um, and it's slow work, but it's, it show, you can feel some gains immediately. You know, you feel like, okay, we sort of ousted a racist DA and a racist sheriff, and that happened within the five years that you know, I have been organizing in Houston. And so I, I, I think the idea that the place to look for your measurements is at the national mm-hmm. level is is really pulls us away from actually turning. I think it's a look it's a look around you more than a look up and out moment that can actually help us feel the hope. And that also is is quite an empowering place to be because you maybe cannot do the influencing work of shaping movements and all of that. That's very long, slow work. But the work of building community spaces. I am a big believer in feminist collectivity. I keep founding collectives <laughs> because and they're very hard work. But you can they're. Um, you know, we talk about like productivity all the time, but I feel as though the work of creating and producing in collectivity is actually quite empowering and is a site of hope, at least for me. Well, that makes a lot of sense, I have to say. It's yeah. a good thing you're a, an activist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that actually leads to the last question I want to ask you both, and then I want to invite you to ask questions of each other, mm-hmm. which is a question about identity and the long... One of the, the most difficult debates in the long history of feminist theory has been the long debate over identity politics. And it has really riven the field and it's riven feminist theory for a long time. You have both been deeply involved with it in different ways. Mm-hmm. Paula, your work has, has been very influential as, a, as a sort of some of the founding work on the anti-anti-identity mm-hmm. politics mm-hmm. move. And Aisha, so much of the activism you've done has been based in identities, has been based in mobilizing political identities in very progressive ways. I wondered if you both have any thoughts about that debate over identity politics at the current moment, whether it's still a relevant debate, whether essentialism really is a problem we need to continue to be worried about, or if it's something we need to move off of and move on to other problems. Well, I, uh, let me start out by saying that, you know, I am very much identified with identity. And I think okay. a lot of people um, don't actually know what I think about it. They have read maybe the title of mm-hmm. one of my books, and then they've decided what they, they, they think I know, uh, what I, they think they know what, what I think. think. Okay. So, um, but let me just say, you know, when I'm talking about identity, I am not really talking about sociological categories like women or men or uh-huh. South Asian or, you know, even though those um, uh, affect identities. But I'm really talking about that which emerges in the interaction between how a person perceives herself and how she is perceived by others. And that kind of epistemic, effective and ideological construct that we carry with us over the course of our lives. And so under that view, identities are not essential, nor are they stable. Mm -hmm. They are, however, persistent, 
and they are persistent because our social worlds tend to persist. So you can think of identities as my former dissertation advisor, uh, Satya Mahanti, used to say, as theories about the world. Like they are theories about the world. They are also, as Linda Alkoff has talked about, interpretive horizons. So there are ways of making sense of the social world. And so we pay attention to them, not to hang on to them or something like that, but because they actually help us diagnose social relations. And if, you know, as a feminist scholar, um, or just a human being living in the world, I'm interested in social relations and what can you know make the difference and how we can interact with each other, then I want a ways of being able to diagnose that. So uh, mm -hmm. we, essentialism was never really the problem. Mm -hmm. It is not the problem. Mm -hmm. People who think talking about identity is essentialist thinking can be a problem. Mm -hmm. um, and I, so I think uh, well yeah. said, <laughs> very nicely put. But I mean, I think we, you know we can't really go forward without um, uh, 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 without organizing around identities, mm -hmm. and those identities can be something like you know what you put on your Twitter, rageful queer. Mm -hmm. Now, if you I, if you organize with other rageful queers, they may or may not be South Asian. They may right. or may not be living in Houston. But you are you are organizing around um, a construct that is something that you can sort of make common cause with. Mm -hmm. So that's how I, mm -hmm. I feel about identities, and I, I think they remain incredibly important. Mm -hmm. I agree. I think this this um, resistance to or thinking about identities reductively is very dangerous, mm -hmm. right? As and as static is of course very dangerous. But I also find that you know um, keep the communities in which I get to do the work of building my own identity, um, both being able to name it and being able to resist um, characteristics of identities that are put on me, though that is the, the most empowering space for me, where I get to mm -hmm. actually be in active conversation around my identities with other people who are interested in making space for conversations about identity. So we've been, I'll give an example. So we've been having, we've been doing a, a social justice summer institute with young South Asians in Houston, progressive summer institute space that happens. And we do a lot of work on, you know, these are younger folks, they're often just into college. So we ask them, well, I tell us about your South Asian identity. That is the, the structure that makes a space. And they have, in this, this past year's cohort, said, well, you know, actually, I'm not sure if even South Asian is the word that I would use or if Desi is the word that I would use. Um, a group of them were saying, well, actually, I identify as a Syrian Christian. <laughs> so, so, you know, like, so there, people are leveraging the question of identity in ways that allows them to make space. And then we sort of are hanging under these umbrellas that at times feel very useful to us and other times feel very stifling to mm -hmm. us. And our work is to sort of use them to the extent mm -hmm. that they are useful but then also resist them when they start to become stifling. And mm -hmm. I think the idea that identity politics is the, you know, unfortunately, we have this sort of legal system that that has sort of protected categories, you know, so we're actually, some of our identity politics is in reaction, is in reaction to this structure that was actually never intended to see us. And so we've been mm -hmm. sort of clamoring for rights and for protected, which I believe in and mm -hmm. I think it actually is important. But it's actually the shaping of our identities is in response to mm -hmm. exclusion. Mm -hmm. And so what? how do we create identities that are generative outside of that exclusionary sort of like that aren't just identities of resistance, but that are identities of 
creating the way that we move in the world, you know, sort of Mm -hmm. naming the way we move in the world ourselves. And that, I think, is the most interesting conversation about identity. I mean, they're always on the news railing about identity politics, which I just feel like is coded for racism. Like, why are all of these people of color talking about it? Why are all these women talking about it? You know, so. And also, one point about this uh, that really um, sinister view on that is the way that certain model minorities, certain Latinx communities are becoming, the identity politics is being used to fracture Mm -hmm. politically, demographically in this Mm -hmm. moment, that demographic anxiety is playing out in this focus on identity politics. And so that is one of the reasons why we have this reductive conversation about identity politics in the media all the time. So one of the things that um, one of my colleagues, Tobin Sievers, he's a disability activist, um, would always say is he would say all politics are identity politics. Mm -hmm. And I truly believe that people don't come together with people that they don't share an identity with. Now, it may not just be a racial identity, it may not be a gender identity, but they share some value system. And so with the Future of Minority Studies uh, project, for instance, um, the people, the different kinds of people that were involved in that were without a doubt the most diverse group of people I have ever been. I mean, from pre- from undergrads to provosts, you know, gay, straight, disability, you know, just the whole thing. But what we did share was a, uh, a kind of conviction about the role and power that identity as a tool for social analysis could give us. Susanna, were you going to jump yeah. in? Oh, no, I mean, <laughs> I, you know, yeah, I've waited on this subject a little too. But, I mean, I, I, I mean, I agree with everything that has been said. I, what's, what's always interesting to me, particularly in this moment, is that here's where there's this unholy alliance between the male left mm-hmm. and uh, the white male left and um, the generic right wing, right? They both hate identity politics. Um, and part of the reason is, the, you know, they're, they're both Whiteness. not reckoning with their racism or sexism, yeah. either one of mm-hmm. them. And, and the truth is, particularly in this moment, you know, what's so horrible about the attacks on identity politics is any form of resistance that has happened in this moment has happened in and through identity politics. I mean, you think of the Women's March all the way through, yeah, right. you know, and what it is, is, is in fact, the, 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 you know, robust, complicated, diverse actualization of identity politics. Mm-hmm. And then you get, of course, you know, the male left in its usual yeah. lovely fashion, you know, making this argument, oh no, we, you know, this is gonna, this is, this is, this will not be the resistance to Trump. What you need is us mm-hmm. white guys to lead you. We don't have identities, mm-hmm. right? You know? Which is <laughs> so, that is also an identity right. politics, of course. Right? Like as though yeah. white nationalism isn't an identity politic. Yeah. You know, right. it's as though there's a neutral, yeah, That's identity, right. yeah. and then there is identity politics, That's right. which is yeah. like that conversation is just built like belies yeah. racism right. at its core. Right. Isha and Paula, I wanted to invite you if you had questions that you wanted to ask each other. Um, if you to ask each other questions, I have lots of questions, but I, one of them, um, uh, yeah, was just you know in looking at your uh, your profile, it struck me how much of an entrepreneur you are. Mm-hmm. Like you know, you have to make this happen, and so you make it happen. You found collectives, you organize them, you you know that there's a lot of energy that goes into that, and so I'm just curious, like mm-hmm. what what motivates you how do you do that what is uh, how do you feel about that aspect uh, yeah. of your work 
that is a really nobody's ever asked me that question <laughs> about like the making of things, the yeah. like doing of things, and yeah. how um, how much it takes to do that. Yeah. It's one of the reasons why I feel so at 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 peace in doing work collectively. Okay. I think it, it makes me feel less like I have to be out on a limb, which I am often. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, I feel like there's that. But I think there's, um, I think actually really I get it from my dad. Mm-hmm. You know, like I feel like there's, there, talk about genealogies, you know, this like idea of, which is, uh, which comes for me from his like sort of, the way he talks about himself as a migrant, mm-hmm. you know, and like, doing and making and moving and growing. And so I think it's very personal, that mm-hmm. that thing. And it, the political analysis of that very personal mm-hmm. way of being in the world, I think comes from, you know, I, it's like something I think about after the fact, you mm-hmm. know, it doesn't mm-hmm. feel like it's a orienting um, way of being in the world. But I also... I think it's also just a restlessness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's just full disclosure, just like, you know, how do we make, how do we keep making? Mm-hmm. And also in Texas, in Houston where I live, there is a, lo- there is a lot of opportunity to make the thing you want to make. Mm-hmm. It's not as gate-kept a political mm-hmm. arena as many are. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of energy. That's Even though it's a big city, yeah. it doesn't feel like, oh, you can't make the thing you want to see. Mm-hmm. You know? And so we just, we have been doing that and it feels very generative. And in fact, in a moment where it feels like all the work, all of my work, I've been, have been doing reproductive justice work since the beginning of the Bush administration, which it feels like constantly stemming a tide. I feel as though this, this, the work of making things feels like an antidote or like a personal respite from the work of holding back bad things happening mm-hmm. um, where you get to generate yeah. something. Yeah. yeah, it's a good question. Mm-hmm. Isha, did you have a question I, you, you know, wanted I to was, ask Paula? Yeah, so I'm really interested in the way that, so I read some of your work and I listened to some of your talks and I was feeling very much like, um, Sometimes the work of the way that you have approached identity, you started to answer it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, inside the academy, has been, I feel, both overt and covert, mm-hmm. and I'm really and I'm really interested in that. So the way that you sort of so you're saying, okay, identity politics is receiving this backlash. So we're going to talk about these other things, mm-hmm. and I'm really interested in the place where you are now in your career, mm-hmm. how you think about overt and covert ways of making change. You don't have to give away all of your covert strategies because this is being recorded. <laughs> but if there are some that you want to talk about, making space, I mean, one of the questions I had for you was about uh-huh. the future of minority studies, which uh-huh. feels to me like an infiltration project. Uh-huh. And I'm really curious about that, about organizing in those ways inside academia. Well, I mean, it really was, in a sense, an infiltration um, project. And I can in no way take credit for that, certainly not as an individual. This was a project that I engaged in with my former dissertation advisor, Satya Mahanti, his wife, Chandra Mahanti, who's an important uh, feminist mm-hmm. theorist, uh, Linda Alcoff, Tobin Siebers, Michael Hames Garcia, Carol here. Um, you know, it became quite a large group. And um, we were trying to think about identity uh, in a sophisticated way, in a way that could be useful for mm-hmm feminist action and feminist organizing. Um, but you know, but it was also helping to build these people's careers because if you know them, when you get asked to write a letter for them, then you do. And you know, yeah. and so it was in a sense building a network of uh, scholars of color and scholars who maybe not were not of color but who 
or sympathetic to many of the mm -hmm. kinds of agendas we had. That was so that you know, yes. I mean, these things often tend to dissipate because you know they do, and so you mm -hmm. maybe found something else. But then I think for me, talking about so you know, working on the issue of racial literacy, working on race. That's I mean, I'm still in a sense working on the the epistemic ideological affect of consequences of identity. I'm just calling it something else mm -hmm. because, mm -hmm. you know, otherwise people are just not going to have to, oh yeah, it's those identity politics people goes. again. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you all for coming and I want to thank Isha and Paula for joining us in this conversation. much to Isha and Paula for speaking with us and offering such valuable insights. And please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review. Ask a Feminist is part of a larger project we're doing at Signs called the Feminist Public Intellectuals Project, which is available on our website at signsjournal.org. You can find tons of fabulous free feminist content there, including our short take series, where we offer commentaries on feminist books. Most recently, we had quite a lively exchange about Linda Hirschman's book, Reckoning, the epic battle against sexual abuse and harassment. We also have a series called Feminist Frictions, which features essays on controversial topics like trigger warnings and identity politics. And you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Signs Journal. I'm Susanna Walters. Thanks for listening. Now please, smash the patriarchy. <laughs>